Hey, everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. Today, as part of our Town Hall series, in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we present four Democratic candidates for the state legislature in position one from the 10th LD. Join us now for a conversation with Angie Hamola, Ivan Lewis, Scott McMullen, and Suzanne Woodard, recorded live on the evening of Tuesday, May 26th. Hey, everybody. Welcome to tonight's Indivisible Town Hall. My name is Stephan Cox. I host the Washington State Indivisible podcast. Thank you to Kat Pipkin, the birthday girl, with the Washington Indivisible Network, and Julie Andrzejewski with Indivisible Tacoma. And thank you also to Louise Pathé for her help tonight. And thanks also to Laurie Barrett with Indivisible Whidbey Island, as well as the Flip the Tenth Coalition of Indivisible Groups in the 10th LD. And of course, Thanks to all of you for joining us tonight. We're getting a little bit of a late start, but we promise that it will be worth it tonight. So we're going to be speaking with four terrific candidates who are running for state representative in the 10th legislative district. that includes North Snohomish County, all of Island County, and the southwest corner of Skagit County. So here is how tonight's discussion is going to go. Each of the candidates is going to have one minute to introduce themselves and to talk about why he or she is running. We will then move on to general platform questions. We will cover the areas of the pandemic economic recovery, health care, climate, Washington's tax system, education, and infrastructure. And then going to move on to audience questions. You all submitted a ton of tremendous questions in advance, so I may be able to just get to a couple of questions that get submitted tonight. I will absolutely do my best. Um, That said, all questions that you submit tonight will be passed along to the candidates for their response. Uh, I will mention that if you just registered within the last couple of hours and you submitted a question, we likely didn't receive those questions, and so you may want to resubmit that question in the chat bar for us. So because we're getting kind of a late start and we only have an hour with all the candidates, we are asking them again to limit their responses to one minute. I'm going to be timing on my end, and I will prompt the candidates when it's time to wrap up their answers. And I will encourage candidates to not use the full minutes if they don't need to. Uh, I will also stress that Even though the candidates are running for the same position, tonight's not going to be a debate. We are looking for each candidate to clarify his or her stances on specific issues, uh, but we're asking that there be no point-counterpoint. And so, with all that out of the way, I would love for you to meet our candidates, all of whom are running for representative in position one in the 10th LD. Angie Hamola has worked and lived and volunteered on Whidbey Island for 23 years. She's an architect and former carpenter, laborer, and machinist. She served as Island County Commissioner from 2009 to 2013 during the Great Recession. Next, I will introduce Ivan Lewis. He is a self-educated entrepreneur with over a decade of experience in early childhood education and education enrichment. He's also also a former volunteer firefighter, EMT, EMS evaluator, and EMS agency supervisor. And Scott McMullen is a veteran and union member, and he currently works at the Boeing Company as a firefighter and EMT and is a Skagit County Community Action Agency board member. He also served on the Mount Vernon City Council for eight years. And then finally, let us introduce Suzanne Woodard. She is a neonatal nurse, educator, and mom. She is also a longtime labor advocate. So welcome to all of the candidates. We are so grateful that you could be with us tonight. So we will begin with our opening question, and you will have one minute to answer this. Uh, please, uh, we'll start with you, Angie. Please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and how you feel that's prepared you for the job of representative. So thank you for that. I moved to Oak Harbor in 1997, where our children 
attended public schools and my husband served our country as a naval aviator. My interest in elected office was inspired 17 years ago when as a whistleblower, I exposed corruption of an elected official. And after that, months of harassment ensued until I resigned. Five years later, I discovered a blatant abuse of a half a million public tax dollars by the same official and started attending city and county meetings where citizens' needs were largely ignored. So I ran for Island County Commissioner and I took office at the onset of the Great Recession. I worked collaboratively to balance the budget while maintaining vital public services and I greatly increased veteran services and government transparency and adopted a clean water utility. As an architect and former carpenter, labor and machinist, I have a deep appreciation for vocational schooling and to preserve natural resources for future generations and find a path forward for just transition to renewable energy. I obtained a master's in environmental law and policy. I have the experience, accountability and compassion needed to serve you in Olympia. Ivan Lewis, let's move on to you. Please introduce yourself and tell us about your background and how you feel that has prepared you for the job of representative. Well, thank you so much again for having me here tonight. I am Ivan Lewis. I'm a 31-year-old father of four. My oldest is seven and my youngest is two. Um, and we'll, we'll circle back on that in a second. Uh, I, am, uh, I've, I am a born and raised Pacific Northwesterner, um, former volunteer firefighter, EMT, Eagle Scout, farmer, contractor, roofer. Uh, I have done a lot of this and a lot of that. Uh, and, and all of that comes back to the reality of where we are right now. Uh, if we don't take action today, uh, my children's generation will be far, far worse off than mine or my parents. Um, and we need people who understand what it's like to raise kids in today's economy, um, who understand what it's like to uh, pay bills right now. We need people who are beholden to what is just and right and kind, not, not the corporations, special interest lobbyists. And uh, that's, uh, we, need, we need champions. And I, intend to, I intend to work to be that champion. So thank you. Thank you, Ivan Lewis. And now let us uh, move on to you, Scott McMullen. Uh, please introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your background and how that has prepared you for the job of representative. Yeah, Scott McMullen, uh, married, got four uh, teenagers still. I've uh, been a firefighter EMT for the past 39 years. Uh, I ran for the Melbourne City Council, was uh, elected and reelected, uh, was voted on by the whole council for me to serve on the Skagit Transit Authority Board. So I served on the council and the Skagit Transit Authority Board, um, Transportation Improvement Board between 2004 and 2012. So it was right during our last financial crisis. Uh, I'm running because I believe strongly in education, public safety, including public health and protecting our beautiful environment. Uh, while I was on city council, I was able to bring a couple parks online for open space. I uh, get represented the city uh, every year in the uh, Farm Workers March from uh, Burlington to Skagit Valley College. And I've uh, been very uh, well uh, supported uh, by the, our Hispanic community here. And uh, uh, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, Suzanne Woodard, let's meet you. Uh, please tell us about your background and how that has prepared you for the job of representative. Thank you so much. My name is Suzanne Woodard, and I am running for the House Position 1 seat. I'm a registered nurse. I have worked 38 years full-time at Providence Hospital in Everett. I worked 23 years in CCU-ICU, where I was the unit supervisor. Before 15 years ago, I switched to labor and delivery. I am not a trained politician and I have never run for public office before, but one of the things I have done is I have been a 
very, very active union member my whole nursing career. I've been a leader in the nurses union. I have, uh, because of my dedicated activity, I was elected the vice president of the executive board of UFCW 21, which is one of the largest private sector union in Washington state. And during this role, I would uh, go to Olympia, testify many times in subcommittee hearings, standing up for worker safety and labor rights. I want to take my medical background, my advocacy, and my organizing skills to Olympia to represent my community and my neighbors. My experience has been that the true voices of government um, need a little help, and I want to lend my voice to that chorus. I am Suzanne Woodard. Thank you. Thank you, and thanks to all of you uh, for your opening statements. We will move on to the subject of the COVID economic recovery. And Suzanne, let's stay with you for this question. The pandemic has ravaged the economy and it has destroyed businesses and jobs all across the state. Uh, Recent statistics show that some 38 percent of Washingtonians are now out of work. What actions would you take as a legislator to direct financial help to struggling workers and small businesses in the 10th LD and across the state? And across the state as well. So this is going to be this is going to be a big deal, everybody, and this is going to go on for a while. I think one of the first things that we need to recognize is is that our regressive tax code in Washington State. We need to take a hard look and a quick look at how we can um, take away some of those corporate carve outs and some of those um, and get away from just being on a sales tax only. And that probably should be one of the first things that we do during this time. So if we can get some more revenue, we also, by that time, we'll be able to have a hard look at what really is going on. Cause we're not really going to have a good sense of it for some time yet with all, some communities opening and others not and kind of figuring out what's going on, but we need to really t- uh, protect our, uh, citizens and really be there for them and not decimate our safety net for them that we can keep everybody going. Same question to you, Angie Hamola. What actions would you take as a legislator to direct financial help to people who are struggling, workers, small businesses in the 10th LD and across the state of Washington? Well, I concur with my colleague here, my fellow candidate here, that we absolutely are going to need to address our financial situation in the state of Washington to really be able to fund these programs. Um, Going right into it right now with the struggles we're having with COVID-19, I will continue to support um, those efforts that have been put in place by our governor, and we will most likely need to bolster and extend the relief payments to help our businesses get back on their feet. And then over the long run, I would like to try to set up some kind of a study group that includes peer-reviewed economists to take a look at what tax structures are available to us in such a way that we can inform the electorate so they can make good decisions about where their choices are. And I think if we show people as an outcome of these studies with um, great information, we can try to move that bar with the vote of the people, which is required to change our constitution for our tax base. Uh, In the meantime, I think we can put in place those measures that are the low hanging fruit, the capital gains tax, a wealth tax, um, polluters pay, whether that's a carbon tax or a cap and trade needs to happen. And perhaps something like the family leave plan where we can have a fee for uh, in, uh, travel of, of goods and services such that it will help infuse our, our, our state budget to help pay for what we're going to have to. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, Ivan Lewis, uh, same question goes to you. Uh, how would you work as a legislator to get the financial help to the struggling workers and small businesses in the 10th LD and across the state who really need it right now? 
Well, I, I think we we come with lessons. We're we're one generation in from um, you know uh, the last uh, uh, crippling crisis, and and the lessons that we've learned from that um, are very clear. Austerity is not the is not the solution when it comes to rebuilding our economy. And uh, less than ten percent of revenue was generated as a result of uh, of that. We we relied heavily on austerity, only ten percent in new revenues. Uh, we need to do better. Uh, there are specific programs uh, in terms of getting people back to work, in terms of getting people back in that uh, uh, are investment-driven. Uh, we need to bolster the Working Families Tax Credit, um, bolster the Working Connections Child Care Program, bolster the uh, ECAP, the Early Child Education Assistance Program. We we need to ensure that um, resources are available for us to be able to get people to work while creating opportunities for us to invest. Uh, and that uh, that means it's time for a, um, a, a 21st century new, new deal. It's time for us to um, put people to work rebuilding our economy while rebuilding our infrastructure in a meaningful way. And then finally, the same question to you, Scott McMullen. How would you work as a legislator to direct financial help to struggling workers and small businesses in the 10th and across the state? Okay, I'll address the tax part of it, I guess, when we get to the tax uh, question. But in the meantime, I, I wouldn't want to ensure our unemployment checks get to those that have been laid off, um, expand our health coverage, and uh, think about cash assistance to those most uh, in need, like um, those that don't qualify, uh, our uh, farm workers and, and whatnot that have uh, lost positions also that are not qualifying um, through the other state and federal programs. Um, the rest of it, um, I would all address, I guess, under the tax, it's tax question. And yeah, so we'll put a pin in that because that question is definitely coming about the state tax structure. We will move on next, though, to health care. Uh, coronavirus has shown huge weaknesses in our health care system, especially when it comes to employer-based insurance. What legislation would you support or propose to achieve universal coverage in Washington? Angie Hola, let's let's start with you on that, please. So I absolutely support a universal coverage in Washington state and our whole nation. I think that's where we need to go, whether that is a single payer or Medicare, that depends how you approach it. In Washington state, we have tried to move forward with um, a state plan, the the whole Washington Health Trust, and I support that. That was put forward by Hasegawa, Hunt, and Kaiser, and it's making some legs. Um, I think that we need to support our foundational public health care services, which is a fundamental responsibility of Washington state. And again, we're going to have to fund this so that we can go back to how to go about that. And I think we can, in the meantime, if we have no other mechanism, do something similar to the Family Leave Act, which is a deduction from our paycheck, and move into the state bank and all the steps that we need to really fund it. But I think we need to go there. If we're not going to do it federally, then we'll need to do it at the state level. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Ivan Lewis, we'll move next to you. What legislation would you support or propose to achieve universal coverage in Washington state? I, I would sign on to the Washington Health Security uh, Trust right out the gate. Um, the legislation's been there for about 14 years. It's well drafted, well put together. It's been submitted year after year, and uh, there's, a, there's a strong... Um, there's a strong case to be made. Uh, the, whole, the whole Washington plan is, uh, uh, is an equally sound approach and, uh, um, and, and would support it too. But as I said, the Washington Health Security Trust is the way to go. I think that the, the funding mechanism is, of course, the crux when we talk about um, buy-in. But the reality is uh, employers, uh, employers are already paying 
uh, an employer-based healthcare system, uh, when we shift the funding mechanisms, it just makes sense. Um, so the foundation's there. Uh, it's just a matter of getting enough people to sign on. So the Washington Health Security Trust is my preferred method. Okay, thank you for that. Suzanne Woodard, uh, I would love to hear from you on that. Is there a specific legislation that you would support or propose as a legislator to achieve universal coverage in Washington? Well, healthcare has been my life work, and I believe it's a human right for all people. And I know that we have to work, we have to move away from an employer based healthcare. Uh, model into one that will cover everyone. I do um, like the Washington whole um, Washington concept with the trust. I do believe that that is probably a good place for us all to go. I also do know that there is a lot of moving parts to that, and it's going to be not something that's going to happen immediately. It's going to take some time to work with all of the people in the state. And also, we have to think about the federal government and all of those parts of it, too. So it's going to be a big project, but I'm, I'm up for it. I, I think we can, we can do it if we focus and we get everybody together to work in one direction. I believe that that can uh, probably benefit most of our people in our state, as opposed to the Affordable Care Act, which is a good one also, but it has some people that fall through the cracks. So I think that this is a good direction and to, to go for all of us. And uh, Scott McMullen, finally to you, uh, what legislation would you support or propose to achieve universal coverage in Washington state? Well, I think we all have the same goal and uh, to get there to where uh, everybody's covered. Uh, we all want everyone covered. I think in, in the meantime, right away, I think we need to make sure that uh, people laid off from the COVID uh, pandemic that we have, that they're able to sign up uh, for our Apple Health Care. Um, immediately, I am for the health trust and and strengthening it. And uh, I would like to see uh, uh, pretty optimistic about that uh, we're going to be able to move there on a national level, and hopefully that uh, that we move there. That's the way it happens. But in the meantime, um, I work on expanding our um, Apple healthcare system. And as a follow-up, and this will be a yes or no answer, do you support publicly funded Medicare for All with no need for profit-based insurance company involvement? Uh, Angie Hamala, uh, yes or no? Yes. Okay. And uh, Ivan Lewis, yes or no? Yes. Okay. Scott McMullen, yes or no? Uh, yes. Okay. And Suzanne Woodard, yes or no? Yes. Okay, terrific. We will move on next to the subject of climate. In May of last year, Governor Inslee signed a law requiring the state transition over to 100% clean energy by 2045. As a representative, what would you do to meet that goal? Uh, Ivan Lewis, let's start with you on this question, please. Fantastic. The the, the um, proposals that we're implementing on the utility side are spectacular, uh, but the, the fact remains that it's it is an economy driven on carbon. Um, and, and what we have to do uh, when we look at legislation is every level. So first off, um, I'll quickly say that, that we can't ask families to invest in a future if they're still struggling today. So dealing with affordable housing, childcare, education, and healthcare is a must. Um, but in terms of applying policy, uh, we, we must look at, uh, at at it as a investment and broadly invest uh, in a shift to a green economy uh, that that uh, makes it too expensive to to uh, um, 
uh, too expensive to do the actions we don't want you to do and affordable to do the ones we want you to do. Thank you. Uh, Scott McMullen, same question to you. Uh, as representative, what would you do to meet the goal of 100% clean energy by 2045? Well, first of all, yeah, I'd like to uh, increase their incentives for uh, zero emission vehicles. Uh, I think that's going to be uh, a big thing right there. I think uh, that um, we need to join our uh, California, Oregon, British Columbia, who um, have benefited from successful uh, fuel programs. And uh, two-thirds of Washington voters actually uh, support a clean fuel standard. And uh, a professor at the University of Washington, um, I'm quoting, uh, she said that, uh, that we can do it. Basically, she said it can be done. It, we just need the political will. And that's what I want to go to Olympia to build Okay, thank you. Uh, Suzanne Woodard, same question to you. Uh, as representative, how would you work to meet the goal of 100% clean energy by 2045? I'm gonna tie the pandemic into this as well. So one of the things that we have just learned from our pandemic, and I'm not gonna call this a silver lining or anything like that, it's not anything but, but because we all stay at home, we all of a sudden look outside and can see I could see the Olympics, I could see the Cascades, I could see the Seattle city skyline, just because we didn't have the traffic. And yes, it wasn't perfect and we didn't get the emission and then we still went up in the emissions from people burning you know, woods in their home. But the lesson to be learned, I believe from this is, the people that, if you could work at home during this time and you were able to financially uh, do your, your job and maintain, you probably should stay there. Okay, and not be adding to the commute. On top of that, if we're going to ask people to stay out of their cars, we have to bolster our infrastructure and we have to get people some commuting options that are viable for them. So we're going to have to work on transportation. Okay, thank you. And uh, finally, same question to you, Angie Hamola. Uh, as representative, what would you do to meet 100% clean energy by 2045? Well, we've been working on this a long time. I served on the State Building Code Council, uh, appointed there by Christine Gregoire, and we just keep, even though we adopt these, we don't quite get there. So to achieve the goals the governor set for us now, our first step really is getting the clean fuel bill passed. We did pass the zero emission vehicle bill last uh, session, which is great. It will help us move forward by bringing the availability for us to have competition in Washington state with those vehicles. And, and that will give us the opportunity to get a leg up on the infrastructure piece. We need to advance the infrastructure. I would like to move on to the bill, which is called the social cost of carbon, which is a way that for our projects that we're going to be letting the contracts that are done for the state, you consider the cost and benefit analysis of what the impact are as you're letting contracts. So I'd like to see us put together a stakeholder group of experts uh, from universities, economists, and land use planning specialists, transportation specialists, union representatives, et cetera, to develop a world-class transportation plan for Washington State. Um, that's vital and support our energy code um, making advancements for protecting the, the use of energy. And I think if we can get these pieces done, we can start putting the infrastructure in that we need, bringing jobs here and moving forward to meet the, the governor's um, bill. Two, two follow-ups to this, uh, and Angela, we'll stay with you. Uh, how do you see the role of green jobs, specifically union jobs, being part of this transition to clean energy? 
Well, I think that if right now for projects that the state lets, if they're above $3 million for public works projects, then they have to avail apprenticeships and minority and women-owned companies. I'd like to see that dollar figure come down and to be advanced for not just the public works projects. And I think that would help bring in more union work um, and that will help us make the transition for affordable, for living wage jobs that are available to union members. Um, I think that answered the question. I can't remember the full question. It was the uh, how you see the role of green jobs being part of the transition to clean energy. Same question to you, Suzanne uh, Woodard. How do you see the role of green jobs, specifically union jobs, being part of this transition? So um, I am a big uh, supporter of the Blue Green Alliance, and I believe um, we need to take our union laborers that are working now in uh, some of our industries that are petroleum based. We need to take them and work with them together and have them have a voice at the table and get them into another uh, work line that will economically support them and be a greener option for them. And this, they, they will listen and they just need to be invited to be able to speak to there and be in on the planning process. And I know that they, in there, they know that this needs to be done, but they just want to be able to participate and be able to, uh, they have felt that they haven't had that voice um, and they've been shouted out. So I think if we could all work together, if someone can reach across to them and we can all sit down, we can make, we can do it. We can make this happen and it, it, it'll take a little time and effort, but it's going to be worthwhile. Thank you. Uh, Ivan, same question to you. How do you see the role of green jobs and specifically union jobs being part of this transition to clean energy? Well, the, the, the bottom line is it's our economy that produces that produces such a carbon load. And it is our economy that is made up of workers. Uh, that's what builds our economy. And our economy uh, needs to be um, focused less on profit drive and more on, um, on uh, living and family wage jobs. Uh, if we can focus an economy that's built on, on um, strong, uh, organized, union, family-level uh, affordable living level jobs uh, that are in the clean sector, of course, we'll have to have a just transition to this, but that is what gets us to a green future um, into a low carbon and no carbon uh, emission future is by supporting unionization and supporting a green transition through just transition. And finally, the same question to you, uh, Scott McMullen. How do you see the role of green jobs and specifically union jobs being part of the transition to 100% clean energy by 2045? Okay. Uh, yeah, it goes with this question too. I wanted to give uh, proper credit to uh, the, uh, like the quote that I gave from uh, her name is Karen Litvin, and um, the exact quote is: uh, "If the political will is there, we can meet these targets." So the most important thing is to build political will. Um, I'm also a fan of the Blue Green, Green Alliance. I've uh, been to a few of their meetings. At the last one uh, about four or five months ago, up here in Burlington. And uh, I think that's a good way to uh, bring all people to the table. I, I think uh, we can do a just transition to, to green jobs. Uh, I think the unions will, um, well, I think a lot of them already are on board. And I think uh, we could get them on board by, by showing them facts of what's going on. Like, um, you know, the North Cascades glaciers, you know, that, that have decreased more than 50 6% since 1900. 
This is going to be just a yes or no answer. Uh, and Angela, we'll, we'll start with you. Do you support the Green New Deal? Yes. Ivan, do you support the Green New Deal? Yes. Scott, do you support the Green New Deal? Yes. Suzanne, do you support the Green New Deal? I do, yes. Okay, so the, for those of you just joining us right now, I will reintroduce our candidates. I know that we had some people come in late. Uh, we are speaking with Angie Hamala, uh, Ivan Lewis, Scott McMullen, Suzanne Woodard. They are all running for representative in position one in the 10th legislative district. So welcome to everybody uh, tonight. We're going to move on to a question about our regressive tax system. And uh, a couple of you have already addressed this. So we'll see if we can get a little bit more granular. And Scott, I know that you had some, some more to say about this. And so we'll start with you on this question. Why Washington does indeed have the most regressive tax system in the United States. What solutions would you propose to make our tax system fairer and more equitable? Well, I, I think we're long overdue for uh, the capital gains tax. Um, I would work to uh, make that happen, uh, get the political will for that. And um, wealth tax on luxury items, uh, you know, expensive really expensive cars, boats, whatever. Uh, I'd be interested in looking into the state income tax. Uh, and then also, you know, uh, cap and trade and higher penalties for our polluters to bring in um, to bring in some revenue there. Thank you. Uh, Suzanne Woodard, as I mentioned, you, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about how uh, you view the solutions to make our tax system fairer and more equitable in Washington. So our sales tax system of financing our, for state revenue really puts the burden of that on our middle and lower socioeconomic class. And that needs we need to just reverse that. 100%. Again, you have tax carve-outs for corporations that really haven't fared it out to be, um, they were supposed to be uh, trying to encourage our economic base, and it really hasn't uh, produced as much in that regard, and it has been overused by some of our corporations. So I think we have to we have to look at erasing all of those. We also, I do support the corporate gains tax as well. I believe that those are two things that we need to look at immediately. Once we ferret that all out, I'm, you know, I'm not totally on the state income tax bandwagon yet. I think we can probably try to see what we can work with those two things and then just try to work from there. Um, our state constitution, that's and, you know, prohibits the state income tax as it is now. So there's going to be a lot of that work. So thank you. There you go. Angie, same question to you. What solutions would you propose to make our tax system fairer and more equitable? So I think people pretty much touched on that. The bottom line is we're not going to be able to make it, especially after COVID-19. We didn't quite meet the mandates for McCleary. We still have a special ed. And now we are really careers. Obviously, all the things everybody mentioned, the low-hanging fruit of the capital gains and wealth taxes, closing tax loopholes, you know, making the corporations pay their fair share. I'm interested in some kind of a polluter pay that will help infuse our infrastructure and help us cover um, advanced jobs. But I think what we're really going to need to do is inform the electorate. And for that, I really want to put together um, a stakeholder group that would be peer-reviewed um, independent individuals that are serving from our economists and the universities that can roll out several models. And in that, they could display what does it look like 
What does it look like right now? How much is it costing the low and middle class? What would it look like with plan B if we had an income tax and reduced or no very reduced property tax and sale tax? And what would it be something an amalgam of the two? And then when we look at all that and share that with the public and show them what the difference would be, I think people might start to move in the direction of, of voting in this uh, a sale, uh, an income tax. And we aren't going to get there until the public come on board with it. Thank you, Angie. Uh, Ivan, finally to you, what solutions would you propose to make our tax system fairer and more equitable? It's all, it's all about targeting wealth. It's about targeting wealth. We should not be taxing people on the, on the cost it requires to live in the state of Washington. We should be taxing on the excess of that in wealth and uh, earnings. And so uh, on the B&O side, while it's a small piece, we need to be shifting the gross sales from small businesses to uh, a more profit-driven approach. On the uh, income side, we need to be taking a hard look in the long term of an income tax. As it's already been addressed, uh, obviously we have a road to get there, but in the short term, uh, there's capital gains. Uh, I really dig uh, Senator Wynn's uh, proposal of uh, of a uh, corporate officer excise tax on wages over a certain times, the number of uh, uh, of their median workers value there, or, or wages. Uh, there, there are there are a lot of bits and pieces, but the fact is, whatever we do, it needs to be based on wealth and profit, not based on just the privilege of residing in Washington State. Thank you. We will move on next to education funding. As we know, the state recently came into compliance with education funding through McCleary, but now uh, budget shortfalls due to the pandemic may threaten the vital funding that we need for our schools. How specifically, and we'll start with you, Scott, how specifically would you work to make sure that our schools have the money that they need to keep going in the months and years ahead? Yes, the, I'm a little bit concerned about you know what uh, I understand why it had to happen, but the education aspect of what had to be vetoed, um, the governor had to veto. Uh, I would love to get um, those back funded. And, uh, and I guess that just kind of comes back to um, our tax system. I, I happen to uh, work for the Boeing company, but I don't approve of the tax breaks that they got um, for years and years on a promise to keep jobs here. And they went back on it a year later and sent them to South Carolina. And we can't let companies get away with that. Um, we got to have something in their uh, RCWs that would stop such a thing from ever happening again. But I, I think closing uh, tax loopholes um, is a way to, to have funding and also maybe reduce the um, to 50% the uh, vote needed for uh, um, construction bonds. Thank you. Uh, Suzanne, same question to you. How would you work to make sure in the face of budget shortfalls that our schools have the money that they need to keep going? Well, this is a tough question. My husband is a South Woodby School District employee, so I happen to know school is going to have a different look to it come with this pandemic, and it's going to be even more of a struggle to get moving forward because we're going to be looking at more than likely split classrooms and shifting kids from one to the other. So, you know, I think, again, we're going to have to try to look at the cost and try to look at what we can do when with the tax code to try to get this going. But it is going to be a really long process and it's going to be, it's going to look different. The other thing that we are going to need for schools is broadband. 
some people, some of our students, because that is where a lot of instruction is going to go. I know that there were some problems with that, but that is going to be the future. And we're going to have to look at how our students can get that, particularly for students that don't live in a district and kids aren't going to be able to just go to the library either. So we're going to have to do that too. So it's going to be a big job. It'll be a big job. Thank you. Uh, Angie, we'll pose the same question to you. How would you work to make sure that our schools will have the the money that they need to keep going in the months and the years uh, following this pandemic? So since we're talking mostly in the 10th and specifically Whidbey area, all the issues we've talked about with taxes are germane. But here we have a huge military base and something that happened some years back was the was our legislature decided that military housing did not need to pay property taxes. And, in, and as a military wife and knowing about housing here, a lot of the housing is actually privatized now and they're not paying their taxes, their share of taxes. So I would like to see that reversed. And also um, the, the impact fees are not really adequate for the imposition of having the military in the region. So I think that we need a little bit more help there to help our students and our schools out. And our levy lid lift back in 2001, Tim Iman, uh, with his efforts managed to pass I-747, the initiative that locked our ability to raise our levy, uh, levy lids 1% without the vote of the people. And inflation for all these years is averages 3%, which really makes it difficult for taxing districts, school districts, library districts, and so on to follow the inflationary rate. And that's been tried a couple of times in the legislature, and I think it will be ripe for a revisit now. And it will cost people a little bit more money but the, until we get to where we aren't using our sales tax and our property tax, it will at least avail us the opportunity to follow that inflationary rate, which I think would help our local schools. schools. Thank you. Ivan, same question to you. How do you make the schools, uh, how do you make sure that the schools continue to have the money that they need to function in the coming months and years? The, the, the bottom line is, as a small business owner, I, I hear a lot the, well, as a business owner, you, you, must, you must have budgeting background. Right? The, there is no comparison. When we talk about a small business, I have to make my, my budget meet. At the end of the day, I have to be in the black. That is absolutely not the priority, the fiduciary responsibility of government. The responsibility of government is that we get this done. The responsibility of government is that we invest in, in the things that are the most likely to strengthen our economy and our middle class. And education is absolutely at the top of the list. We have to invest in paraeducators and school nurses and mental health staff that, that are, go beyond just the K through 12, while at the same time really evaluating the fact that our universal um, education system needs to include childcare, pre-K, all the way to true career readiness. And, and so when we go into this, it, it, we, we, must, we must not make the same austerity mistakes. We must ensure that those dollars um, are placed, uh, placed appropriately in what they are, investment not expenses when it comes to education. Thank you, Ivan. We will move on to our final general question, and that is about infrastructure. Residents of the 10th have to contend with diminished roads, bridges, highways that result in heavier traffic and negative environmental impacts. How would you work to bring resources to the 10th for needed infrastructure improvements? Scott McMullen, let's start with you, please. Yes, uh, the number one uh, infrastructure that I think is important in the 10th right now is uh, having broadband um, throughout the tent. Um, I think we need to build that infrastructure up. Um, businesses and uh, um, can't compete, uh, especially small businesses, if they don't have that uh, access. And I, I'm really excited about the Washington State Ferries uh, 
plan for the electric hybrid uh, ferries to come in. Um, I think that that's going to be um, outstanding. I think we need uh, Whidbey Island, of course, relies a lot on the uh, ferry system. So uh, anything we do with the uh, um, the ports there and but the big thing is, I think right now is the infrastructure for um, that's a kind of a top priority for me is, is the broadband. Uh, same question to you, Suzanne Woodard. Uh, how would you work to bring the resources that the tent needs for infrastructure improvement? Well, you know, one of the things is, is that we do uh, infrastructure. We have so many avenues that aren't in any other district. We've got the ferries, we've got bridges, we've got highways, and we need to actually work on keeping them in good enough shape to keep, to maintain our uh, safe travel for all our people here. So to, we need to make sure that we get our fair share of transportation dollars in our district. I see, think sometimes that it's viewed as being somewhat of a recreational destination. And no, people live here all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're here all the time. So um, I think that that's an important avenue as well. And I think we need to get a group of some of our uh, commuters in our neighborhood and, and kind of look at some options that we have because we we need public transit. We need all of those items to keep us in, so we can get to and from where we want to go. Because if you ever lived here, trying to get from point A to point B is a deal around here. So we need to work on that as well. So making sure that we can get all of those things in our community so that we can get about safely. Angie, same question to you. What would you do in Olympia to bring the resources that the 10th really needs for infrastructure improvements? Well, some years back, due to some infighting, we ended up separating from the Northwest Regional Transportation Board and we're our own now. So that's a little challenging, I think, to try to get our dollars back. So I would like to revisit how that worked and see if we can remedy that problem. In the meantime, we definitely need to continue fighting for the fact that we do need ferries and oftentimes that's not a big priority for the balance of the state. So we need to work on maintaining um, our dollars there. Certainly we're gonna have to do a polluter pay. If we had some kind of um, carbon tax or carbon um, cap and trade, those dollars could come back into our infrastructure and bring those dollars here to the 10th LD. Part of that infrastructure is broadband and bringing the communications that we need to provide for local jobs and feeding people. So keeping um, an investment in our local farms and farm to table type of um, jobs for our infrastructure here so we're not having to commute so much. And advancing our bicycle lanes, which we've been trying to do here on Woodby is make a full bike lane. It brings tourism here, it brings jobs here, gets people out of their cars, and then advance our power grid system so that we can use that zero emission vehicle program that's bringing those cars into our state and get them here. Ivan Lewis, uh, finally to you, what would you do to bring resource to, uh, resources to the 10th for infrastructure improvements? Well, we, we all know what these infrastructures are. We have functioning obsolete bridges. We've got this, uh, uh, we have a major Camino Island I-5 corridor issue that's just a spectacular problem. The Highway 20 corridor that is a spectacular problem. Um, and uh, and to boot, we have uh, uh, the bleed off of the I-5 corridor. That, the, the infrastructure elements are absolutely there. The fact is, unfortunately, the way infrastructure dollars get distributed is loud, aggressive voices in Olympia. That's it. The bottom line is that our system is dependent on on people, um, on on your representatives uh, demanding uh, this or that for your district. Um, and so, so what I, I 
all I can really offer uh, is that uh, that I will be allowed an aggressive voice um, for infrastructure dollars to be brought to the 10th legislative district. And thanks to all of you for that. Uh, one final question, and this is a very quick yes or no as part of our general questions, and this has to do with corporate PAC contributions. Uh, Scott McMullen, let's start with you. Yes or no, does your campaign accept money from PACs, super PACs, or corporations? I will accept contributions from people and organizations who share my values. It's a yes or no, sir. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, yes. Okay. okay. Uh, Suzanne Woodard, do you does your campaign accept money from PACs, super PACs, or corporations? No. No, no corporate funds. Angie Homola, does your campaign accept money from PACs, super PACs, or corporations? You have to ask that a different way because political action committees are required by law by the Public Disclosure Commission in Washington State and almost every one of these unions and affiliates are a political action committee. If you wanna ask the question, will we take money from big corporations, um, pharmaceutical companies, fossil fuel companies, that answer to that is absolutely not. And finally, uh, to you, Ivan, does your campaign accept money from PACs, super PACs, or corporations? I, I do receive PAC money from unions, yes. Okay. We will now move on to, and thank you, uh, all of you, uh, so much for your your wonderful answers. Um, we'll move on to some audience questions. We're going to start with a question from Mary that is extraordinarily timely, and it's a, it's a tough one. Uh, the legislature is going to have a special session this summer to deal with budget shortfalls due to COVID. And Mary asks, which specific programs would you prioritize in terms of maintaining continued funding? Scott McMullen, let's please start with you. So... My priorities is going to be um, basically first public safety and health. I think if, we, if, if people aren't uh, feel safe, um, we don't keep them healthy. Um, we're going to be in for um, a lot bigger economic uh, impact. Um, social services, I would not want to see any cuts there. Um, and in education, I think we need to um, keep all that funding. Um, like I said, we lost some um, in this. It was vetoed had had to be vetoed by the governor uh, i would like to see those put back in and um so th basically those three are my top uh that i would definitely uh, be protecting thanks so much suzanne woodard the same question to you with the special session if you were in office right now which programs would you work to prioritize to maintain funding so in the 2008 recession, they kind of stripped down the social safety net for our state down to that's what they used to offset the budgetary shortfalls back then. And we have just now climbed back from that and gotten to a point where we have some of our social network back. We need to not do that again when this comes around. We have to look at all of our programs and and not just pick some of the social ones to try to diminish, to try to make that make up that shortfall. So I think that um, supporting our families, support, supporting our people will support our economy, will help us all in the long run try to get through this. This is gonna take all of us together working on this. This is gonna be a, a long, and this is gonna take a while. It's not gonna be one session, we're gonna be done. It's gonna take a while. Angie Hamola, same thing to you. Uh, how would you prioritize, which specific programs would you uh, work to protect and make sure that they may maintain continued funding during a special session? So similar to taking office during the Great Recession as a commissioner, you have certain mandates you have to meet. So that's the first thing is you're gonna to have to provide for those and that includes 
providing, I, I hope, SNAP, which is the food, essentially food stamps for people that are really hungry, hungry families, meeting your mandates to try to provide for seniors, um, your public health services. They don't make money, especially mental health care. And those are people who are really going to be desperate, looking for more opioid addiction. So it's a big priority for me to make sure we continue to fund those and the other safety net programs that we have to fund to keep people going. So those will be the priorities and then hopefully we can bring on board as we did through um, getting a AA bond rating by being very efficient, making cuts where we could and looking for better ways to fund this Washington state tax structure. Ivan Lewis, same question to you. Which specific programs would you prioritize to maintain continued funding? There's, there's no state, there's no state vacation fund or luxury jar or splurge money um, we, as a state legislator, we take on responsibility for passing legislation with programs for a reason. And just because um, we hit a crisis uh, doesn't, doesn't mean it's become, um, become less valuable. So austerity is, is not the solution. The solution is continuing to invest in our economy, continuing to build, looking at new revenue sources that, again, focus on, uh, uh, on uh, wealth and, and, and wage and, uh, and um, uh, uh, privileged investments and, and and focusing in on building our economy, not not cutting it back. Uh, you have 15 extra seconds. So I'll just follow up. Are there specific programs that you would prioritize? I the the vast majority of our priorities include um, things that we just that we do already. There there isn't a very specific list. We focus on education, on healthcare, on access to resources, on safety nets, on housing, on infrastructure. Those programs are essential. Period. We'll now move on to a question about Naval Air Station Whidbey Island. This is located in the 10th Legislative District. Um, how do you, and, and we'll start with you, Suzanne, how do you balance the occupation of military operations with the needs of local businesses, schools, the environment, and the civilian population? So the Navy has been at the Naval base has been there for many, many, many years. And so it is not going to be something, it is a basis of the economy. It's not going to be something that just will um, evaporate and go away. Um, I, I do not believe that the Navy has been the best neighbor for everybody. And I believe they have had some issues with transparency in a lot of their operations. They have not been forthcoming with um, some of the requests from the community about some of the um, activities on the Naval Station. So I think that there's an opportunity to sit down with them and I believe uh, try to get them to be a little more transparent and also be that uh, person that will work with the community. I know there's a lot of people that are um, protective of the Navy base just because that's their, that's why they came to this area. And we need to, you know, I am not someone who wants to shut down the base or do, uh, you know, anything along those lines, but I do believe that we have to look at the pollution and we do have to look at some of the noise pollution coming from there because that's affecting everybody on the island. Scott McMullen, same question to you. How do you balance the occupation of military operations with the needs of local businesses, schools, the environment, and the civilian population? Yeah, as far as the economic impact, I mean, it's, Pretty substantial, and um, this is not this would not be a time we'd want to see uh, jobs lost. Um, I do. Uh, I have experienced the the jet noise myself. I, I lived in Oak Harbor for a year and a half. Um, actually, they fly over here in Mount Vernon too, not quite as often. But anyway, I've experienced it. I have. I 
very sympathetic to it. I, I'm putting some hope that hopefully um, this real-time monitoring that uh, Congressman Larson's been able to line up, um, hopefully that's going to lead to some positive outcomes. And um, yeah, just the, the uh, yeah, the real-time monitoring, I'm just putting a lot of, uh, and then I would constantly be talking to my, uh, let the uh, delegation, my federal delegation, let this, let them know, hey, Navy needs to be good neighbors here. Uh, Angie Hamola, same question to you. How do you balance the needs of the naval base, uh, the, uh, the, rather the naval station, with the needs of the civilian population? Well, I think the first step was done recently here with a true cost benefit analysis that actually determined the impact of the Navy base is does not bring in as much money as we actually think it does. And what I did as a county commissioner is I always feel like my job is to be the liaison to sister agencies and to other um, levels of government. So I met with uh, base commanders, three consecutive base commanders in a row. I also went to the Pentagon to meet with the chief of naval operations to talk about that balance and come to find out we actually had pretty, uh, we're on the same page that it's not a, it's not the military's best interest for a, an economy to be totally reliant upon the military because in the event they have to leave or have a closure, it's very expensive to them to pay for the impacts it causes. So I think we need to find a much more balanced approach to advocate for local businesses. When I was a commissioner, we had people actually come and tell us that people who stayed at their bed and breakfast would never come back because they didn't know they weren't gonna be able to let their children play outside. And our local farmers had people on the ground covering their ears because it was so painful they would never come back. So the growler has brought a lot of noise and a true environmental impact study was not done until it was sued and now they're working on it. We have the ability to put mitigation on these planes. It'll be expensive to reduce the noise. I think we should pay for it. And I think we should not be flying over the wilderness area or historic reserve. And then finally, to you, Ivan Lewis, uh, how do you balance the needs of Naval Air Station Woodby Island with the needs of the local population? Well, the fact is they're a stakeholder, and we have to address the fact that they're a community stakeholder and and to be working um, to to uh, to really to really understand and work with that. But the, the piece of this is that they've got rules. There's um, federal rules, there's their, rule, their rules, there's state rules, and often they're not being followed. And, and they have a responsibility to push for operational readiness. Um, as a former firefighter, uh, I know the importance of being able to train the way that you, um, that you work. That, that's what saves lives, saves our lives, saves community lives. I understand that. But they push uh, in terms of being able to provide uh, as much opportunity for their career readiness and their operations as they can. And it is our responsibility to push back. Uh, I was uh, one of the first proposers of a, of a, uh, a resolution um, opposing uh, their expansion of, of parklands from operational readiness from three to their nearly three dozen. Uh, it, it comes down to them following the rules and being an active participant, not just um, an external force. Thank you for that. Uh, we have a question about bail reform from Anita of Indivisible Snohomish, and she says uh, income disparities negatively impact whether a person accused of a low-level crime will be incarcerated until their trial. Do you support bail reform, especially in light of COVID-19 concerns? Ivan, let's stay with you on that question. I I think bail reform is an absolute must. I I. I for many of the things that we're talking about when we talk about bail reform on the low level side, I, there shouldn't be, we should be utilizing prison and, and, uh, uh, and um, al prison alternatives already, incarceration alternatives already. Um, there's, no, there's no reason for it. Uh, when we talk about bail reform, uh, we, we have 
we have got to get out of the draconian and antiquated process of saying that all bail is equal. We need to allow um, uh, trial courts a much larger um, freedom in determining uh, what an appropriate amount is. So, so 100% um, bail reform is a must. Thank you for that. Uh, Angie Hamola, we'll go to you. Do you support bail reform, especially in light of COVID-19 concerns? Yes, for the same reasons. I mean, we, we, I was on the state, uh, Washington, Washington State's Democratic Party state committee member and helped pass resolutions that would help move us in that direction. All, obviously, people who have the least amount of money who end up in misdemeanors who then get, get more and more trouble because they can't pay for their fines and they wind up being faced with having to be incarcerated. They can't pay for their, they can't get out. They, they don't have options for bail. So it's an upside down system that hurts those with the least the most and really hurts uh, local families, children. So we need bail reform and I fully support it. Suzanne Woodard, same question to you. Do you support bail reform, especially in light of COVID-19 concerns? I absolutely do. I think that um, bail reform, singles out persons who are of lower socioeconomic and persons of color and they can't afford it. And it actually, once you get that stamp on you, it's hard to get away from it. The other thing, we're in the middle of a public health crisis, everybody. And our jails and our prisons are the number one places that we are spreading the virus. And so if we can keep people out of there and some people say, oh, that's not gonna be an issue. It is an issue because other people come into the jail system, people that deliver, people that work here, then they go home to their house. That's how you spread those things. So the the minute we can keep people out of that system, that's going to help our public health crisis right now. So if they don't need to be there, they're low level. Yes, they should not. They should go home. Thank yeah. you. And then finally to you, Scott McMullen, do you support bail reform, uh, especially in light of COVID-19 concerns? Uh, yes, I do for the obvious reason, of course, there with the COVID-19. But even before that, uh, pretrial services um, have been proven to show that uh, it's, less costly, it's less costly than holding them in jail. Um, and it's comparable, if not better, when pretrial services are used instead of bail as far as people showing up. So I think there's, there's a successful program um, right there that will work. Um, Pretrial services uh, monitors uh, make checks in with people, make sure they, they're going to get to court and whatnot. But it's um, good program. I am going to now turn to a couple of questions that uh, people watching are have posed tonight, uh, and one draws back on something that uh, a couple of you mentioned earlier. This is from Logan. What will you do to ensure every home in Washington has access to broadband or, better yet, fiber internet? Angie, can we start with you on that? Well, it's an ongoing problem, especially where we are on the islands, and there are some grant matches that we've been able to bring here. It is an area, um, I'm sure our current county commissioners, Helen Price Johnson and Janet Sinclair, have been working hard to try to advance that here. I don't have an immediate solution other than we need to adequately and make it available. And as mentioned, it's really tough on kids that are trying to learn their schoolwork and their cars parked in libraries outside of schools. It's not a tenable situation. And again, it hurts those with the least the most and doesn't allow us to have sustainable businesses within the home. So I will work hard to try to bring brain back, bring broadband here to the tent, continue that effort. Ivan Lewis, same question to you. Uh, what would you do to ensure every home in Washington has access to broadband or fiber internet? 
public utility. There's just no reason why um, it's anything different than making sure that we've hooked up uh, power. Uh, we, whether or not we get there through a public-private partnership, like what we do with PSC or the utilities, whether or not we do that straight through a public utility district, uh, it, regardless, um, it has to be considered a public utility. It has to be um, an investment we make, uh, and we have to include it as part of our, our expectation for building codes. Scott McMullen, same uh, same question to you. What would you do to ensure that every home in, in Washington, and in particular the 10th, has access to broadband internet? Yeah, I spoke a little earlier about that and how it's a priority to me. I think that how we do it is make it um, a priority, make sure it's a priority. And I got to agree with Ivan on that. It's got to be uh, considered just like any other utility. It's, a, it's an essential, and we need to make it a priority and make the investment. Okay. And then finally, uh, to you, Suzanne Woodard, how would you like to see broadband access brought to every uh, home in your district and also in Washington? Well, I agree with Ivan. It's public utility. It's something that we need to uh, just like electricity or uh, phone service back in the day that we have for everyone. It's it's like everybody has to have it to subsist in life anymore. And we need to recognize that as such and work hard to get it to everyone. And um, that's gonna take, you know, I know that our local officials have been working hard on it, but I would plan to work on that as well in the legislature. Thank you to all of you. Uh, One final question. If the primary comes down to a single Democrat versus a Republican, will each of you pledge to support that Democrat? And uh, we'll start with you, Angie. Absolutely. Um, I will say the the one person here who didn't step on any toes is Scott McMullen. And I honored that uh, way to sat back. And then when I saw other people stepping into this race and it became an uncontested race. My first reach was to Mr. McMullen and then to the other two candidates, hoping that we would work collegiately and making hopefully an agreement that out of the primary that we would endorse whoever goes forward. And I would stand by that. I I guess I would just be moved to ask if Angie speaks for all of you, Ivan. Yes. Okay. And Scott? Yes. And I applaud Angie for, for her efforts in this. And my answer is yes. It's important to flip the tent. And Suzanne? Yes, I have always been a Democrat, and I always will, and I will always support Democrats. Just a couple of moments to wrap up here, and I will ask each of you where people can learn more about your campaigns and what specific needs you might have. Suzanne, let's let's stay with you. Okay, so um, SuzanneWitter.com is my um, campaign webpage. And, you know, as we are moving forward here in our COVID age, you know, it's difficult to get out and campaign. A lot of Zoom stuff is going on. We do have some events that are coming up. Um, June 9th, we're going to have a happy hour. So I'll invite everybody on on board for that. And so just, you know, trying to uh, communicate with voters. So if anybody wants to email me, it's electrnsuzanne at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to hear from any of you on any topic. Suzanne Woodard, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Scott McMullen, where can people learn about your campaign and what needs do you have? Uh, Yes, it's uh, scottmcmullen.org, the website. Um, yes, I can use, uh, any, everything really. It's from, uh, campaign, uh, signs, uh, locations. Um, the big thing of course, right you now is, uh, contributions are, um, really important, uh, volunteer, um, any, any help 
is uh, always very welcome. And uh, that my email is also is also uh, info at scottmcmullen.org. Scott McMullen, thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, Ivan Lewis, final words from you. Where can people learn more about your campaign? IvanLewis.org uh, and Facebook uh, at Vote Ivan Lewis. I have uh, a I'll have a town hall coming with uh, some some other local progressives in uh, uh, in the area uh, on the 16th. Uh, I ask that you, uh, you take a look at our Facebook, my Facebook, and um, see if that's something you want to uh, take a look at. Uh, I am very focused on activating a young constituency in Island County and the 10th as a whole. Uh, and I ask that, uh, that you, um, uh, that you uh, push young folks um, to the party and organizations like Indivisible the best we can. Um, if we can't activate uh, that next generation, those under 35s into really engaging um, with our process, um, we're we're done. We die before we start. So, uh, so I, I'll, I'll take my time to remind you to remind young folks that they have a place here, and we're excited to have them. Uh, and uh, and again, IvanLewis.org. So, thank you, Ivan Lewis. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. And Angie Hamola, you get the last word uh, this evening. Uh, where can people learn more about your campaign? So, my campaign website is AngieForAll.com, as is my Facebook site. And I want to thank everybody for attending this tonight. What people can really do for my campaign and for all of us to try to take back our democracy is to pay attention and to really dig deep and to spend more than 30 seconds looking at a, at a candidate. Go to their websites, go to my website, look at what I've done. I've had a lot of experience serving this community, both as an elected official, as a volunteer in our school system, and as a volunteer working for the Democratic Party. I'm dedicated to serving here. I understand a lot of the problems and the people here and have a proven track record of fighting for what's right and not what's easy. So please just dig deep, look hard. We're holding a lot of virtual coffees and if you'd like to participate in one of those, please just let me know. Thank you. Thank you again to all of our candidates, Angie Hamola, Ivan Lewis, Scott McMullen, and Suzanne Woodard. Thanks again to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Unjievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. Thanks also to Larry Barrett with the Flip the Tenth Coalition. A reminder to all of you to join us on Tuesday, June 2nd for a town hall with candidates for Lieutenant Governor, Congressman Denny Heck and State Senator Marco Leas. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org. Our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at DemcastUSA.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell, and as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.